Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Ian Miller, lecturer in medical history at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster. It aims to map changing experiences of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century all the way to the present day. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Rebecca Watterson, PhD candidate at Ulster University, and also Dr. Richard O'Leary, visiting scholar in the School of History, Queen's University. Rebecca, how and why did so-called treatments for homosexuality come into existence? So in 1935, uh, Louis Max, a psychiatrist from New York University, published a report on the use of aversion therapy for the so-called treatment of homosexuality using electric shocks. And this was the first official report of the use of aversion therapy. And throughout the mid to late 20th century across America, Europe, the UK, and indeed Northern Ireland, individuals were and are subjected to numerous different so-called treatments for being gay. And these treatments were born out of the belief that homosexuality was either a form of deviancy or it was pathological, both meaning it was something that could be cured. Homosexuality was classed as a psychiatric disorder in the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Statistical Manual, version 2, until 1974, when it was removed. Despite being of American origin, the DSM, as it was known, was a key tool for doctors and psychiatrists to diagnose mental illness in the UK. The World Health Organization referenced homosexuality as a mental illness until 1990, when those references were removed from the WHO directory, and homosexuality remained in the ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases 10th Revision, until 1992. In 1967, there was a partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. In the 1970s, we see the emergence of gay liberation activism in America and the UK following Stonewall. And in 1975, the Northern Ireland Gay Rights Association was established to campaign for decriminalisation legislation in a religiously conservative Northern Ireland at a time when attacks on gay men was very common. In response to this campaign, Ian Paisley, then leader of the Democratic Unionist Party and Free Presbyterian Church, launched his own campaign, Save Ulster from Sodomy. And this was based on his belief that the Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin and therefore should not be made legal in a state founded on Christian principles. It would not be until 1982 when Northern Ireland would see decriminalisation following the European Court of Human Rights case taken by Geoffrey Dudgeon, a former Ulster Unionist councillor, against the United Kingdom in 1981. This medicalised approach throughout the 20th century intertwined with and influenced societal attitudes and despite the removal of this medicalization in the late 20th century, there continued and continues to be stigma, shame and lasting influence on attitudes towards LGBT plus people up to the present day, as well as the use of conversion therapies outside of medical settings. So how exactly did psychiatrists and psychologists attempt to cure homosexuality? There are various examples of so-called treatments for homosexuality that were in use in the United States, Europe, the UK and in Northern Ireland. 
treatment options ranged from counselling and psychoanalysis to more physical approaches such as chemical castration through the use of oestrogen, known widely as the treatment Alan Turing was subjected to in the early 1950s. There is also evidence of the use of transorbital lobotomy as an approach to treating homosexuality in Italy and America. No less violent were the chemical and electrical aversion therapies. The chemical aversion technique was when a patient was given apomorphine, an emetic, to induce vomiting and nausea. When the medication began to work, the patient was shown images of semi-naked or naked men. Patients subjected to this approach were often admitted to hospital due to dehydration and side effects from continued use of emetic medications. I understand that in Belfast in the 1960s and 70s, we do know that electroshock aversion therapy was used. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, in this episode, we are representing the experiences of John, an alias to protect his identity, who received electroshock aversion therapy at Windsor House in the City Hospital Belfast in the late 1960s and early 1970s. John's experiences demonstrate not only a violent therapeutic approach, but also highlight medicalization and the belief that homosexuality could be cured. John grew up in a small rural village in Northern Ireland. Born in the 1950s, he recalled a childhood being brought up in the Presbyterian Church. But once he reached puberty, he felt that there was something different about him compared to the other boys in high school. I think it took me until I was about 14 and suddenly had this moment when I realised I'm a homosexual. I'm all these people that are so horrible and talked about disgusting and everything else. It was quite a horrible revelation to have. So as a result of that, I prayed a lot. In those days, I was quite religious. At 14, I was recruited by the minister in the Presbyterian church to teach these little kids in Sunday school. However, nothing happened. None of my praying, everything. I still felt exactly the same. When I reached age 16, I remember saying to my mother, right, I'd said, I'm not going to church anymore. And she said, you're just too lazy. You won't get out of bed on Sunday. And I said, no, that's not the reason. I just don't believe it. Ever since, I never have. That's it. End of religion for me. However, at age 16, I decided I had to do something about it. The minister of my church was much of an all hellfire sort of guy. And, you know, it would have been, I can just imagine what they would have done. Probably exorcism or something. So instead of that, I went to see my GP. He was actually very understanding. At the time, I thought this was an awful thing to be. My whole upbringing had been these people were monsters, you know, and you couldn't just switch that though in your head. I just was determined I had to get this thing cured. Now I had more faith in science than in God. So I saw the GP and he started telling me things like, oh, well, you know, people like Oscar Wilde and Tchaikovsky were homosexual and great minds and all this kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, look, what happened to them? You know, one committed suicide and the other one ended up in Reading jail wasn't exactly great role models to put. So I said to him, no, I've got to get cured. And so he arranged it actually, my first contact with the psychiatric services. He would arrange for me to go down to Lauren to the Moyle Hospital, the nearest hospital where there was a psychiatric service. And he arranged for me to go there once every couple of weeks or so on Wednesday afternoon. It was sports day and I didn't play sports anyway. He came up with a story that I had some problem with my spine and I had to go for traction treatment in the hospital. I had a line from a doctor to my school so I could get off school on my parents. I told them the same story. What the psychologist basically told me was that I was quite shy. I had difficulty interacting with my peers, even at school. I wasn't, you know, the most popular boy. I was a bit more sort of academic and did well in classes. So he said to me, this was the problem. He said, basically what's happened is you're afraid of interaction with women. You're afraid to get too close to people. 
So because of that, you're transferring your sexual feelings from women to men. So this was his theory. It must have been the theory at the time. He said, so what we have to do is get you comfortable with things about girls and talking to girls and all that kind of stuff. John's first experience with a so-called treatment for homosexuality was counselling. But when he attended Queen's University, Belfast, he experienced a physical approach to treatment. I started going to Windsor House. It used to be an old sort of Victorian stone building behind the what would be the Medical Biology Centre on the Lisburn Road. So in the grounds of the Belfast City Hospital, there I saw a psychiatrist regularly and a psychologist every couple of months. The treatment was left in the hands of a clinical psychologist, a young fellow who undertook this treatment, this aversion therapy, which would make me averse to interaction with men and respond in a negative way to any thoughts of a sexual nature towards men. The treatment was aversion to same-sex relations and then encouragement of opposite-sex relationships. That went on for at least two or three years. I went up to Queen's when I was 18. I may have been 19 by the time I started doing all this stuff. The actual aversion part went on for like six months or something, maybe, and then the other bit went on for another six months. It was interrupted because it could only happen in term times when it was up in Belfast. I think it was probably 22 before it stopped. How long did the aversion therapy sessions last for? Probably around 30 to 45 minutes. The first thing that happened was he showed me all these slides. I suppose that there would be sort of pornographic slides is what you call them, of men. And either by themselves, like naked, semi-naked, naked, erect, sometimes having sex with each other. I remember saying to him, where on earth did you get all these things from, these slides? He said, we actually get them from slides that have been confiscated by customs officials. It's hard to imagine that, the interactions of government departments, you know, the health service, going along and asking the customs, have you got any dirty slides? So anyway, we went through the slides in progression from my least favourite to my most favourite. Then they wired me up to a machine that would give you an electric shock. I remember at the very beginning it was in your feet. You had to put on these plimsoll things that were wired up to your feet. I just had very sensitive feet or something. I couldn't bear the thought of having these things in my feet. So I got them to wrigley electrodes up to my hands instead. And so then he showed me how the machine worked. We did a few test runs and he would say, now, this is the mildest shock you'll get. I got the experience of having a few shocks of increasing intensity just as a trial, what it was going to be like, uh, which absolutely terrified me. It was horrendous. They attached a sort of loop thing to your penis, which was a pressure measuring device. So basically, if you got an erection, it would stretch this wire and they would get a signal. So they would know when you were watching these slides. He would put the slide up. I would look at it and I was supposed to allow myself to be sexually excited by this, at which point once they detected some change in this machine, the excitement level. So I get a slight shock and then I was supposed to continue having sexual thoughts about this person and then after another 30 seconds I was, uh, another 30 seconds, I was still getting excited. I would get another shock, only a stronger one. Personally I simply couldn't get erect and excited looking at things knowing I was just about to get an electric shock. Stupid premise anyway. So nonetheless I told him that and he said well that's okay. We're going to go through the procedure anyway. You'll come in, he said. You may not get a lot of shocks, but you will be in a stressful situation, and you will learn to associate looking at pornographic images of men with an unpleasant thing. This went on probably for most of my first or second year at university. And after that was finished, we then went on to talking about women. How do you feel talking about social situations? But the main thing was trying to get me to get a girlfriend. So I had to try and acquire a girlfriend, which I did during my second and third year at university. So that formed the basis. I was still going to see the psychiatrist and everything at that time. And I was having these sessions and I'd have to tell him about what it was like having sex with a woman and describe it all. I had to stay very calm and relaxed and be happy about it. And I was given a reward and the reward was a glass of orange juice. What happened was I had to take this tablet in the morning and when I got up on the day of my session, it was a juretic tablet. I remember very well telling him, this is not working. I'm not thirsty. I couldn't care less about your orange juice. So I said, why don't I take the tablet the night before, dinner time? 
and I'll be really thirsty by the time I see you. Oh no, we can't do that, that's not our protocol, we must stick to the protocol. And after a couple of years, by this time I was 23, I remember going to see the psychiatrist and I remember saying to him, look, I've been coming to see you now for several years and I've done everything, it's not working, I think I'm just going to have to accept that I'm a homosexual and get on with it. And he said, well, I've been waiting for you to say that to me. So in other words, he knew it hadn't worked and he was waiting for me to come to the realization that I have to live with it. The problem was, I didn't understand it at the time, but I know now. They published some of this work. They had a scientific protocol that they described and everybody who was in this treatment program had to follow the same program. And they couldn't have me deviating from it, you know, to the mess up the results. That was it. I was part of a scientific experiment in a way. And after you brought the treatment to an end, did they ever follow up with you? No, they never followed up. I followed up. I remember going to a conference and who was at it but the psychologist. And I saw him in the audience and at the tea break or something. I went over and said, hello doctor, I'm sure you won't remember me, but you treated me back in the 70s with aversion therapy. He was absolutely shocked. You could see he was so embarrassed. He just said, oh, I'm so sorry. And the thing we did then were so long. He said, you know, I can't apologize enough. And he didn't know where to put himself. Actually, I feel sorry for him. I said, look, please, I'm not blaming you. I'm not criticizing you. I wanted you to do it. I wanted to change, you know. We were living in a different era, but I just left him after a while. I couldn't really talk to him. He was just so upset about it. Do you think you have any lasting effects from that period of treatment? No, I've gotten over it. I've gotten over it. Eventually, you know, eventually I met somebody. Conversion therapy has not ended. This is despite a move away since the 70s and particularly 80s against uh, psychiatric models of homosexuality which depicts it as an illness or pathology. Today we are joined by Dr. Richard O'Leary to discuss how conversion therapy has been able to continue even outside of a medicalised approach in Northern Ireland. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ian. I um, first um, came across um, practices of what we might now describe as um, conversion therapy uh, when I was living in Belfast um, just after graduation in 1990. And um, I went along to a church uh, event. I thought it was a, it was a public talk. Um, I had no idea that the subject matter was actually going to be a, a young man who was giving a testimony as to how he said he had been um, in a homosexual lifestyle and that this was something which he had been able to um, exit through um, counselling. And um, he was you know, quite uh, graphic about um, his, his past evil lifestyle and presented him as being um, you know, a different person and a virtual person and no longer homosexual. Um, it was very uncomfortable for me to be in the audience because um, I hadn't expected this was going to be the subject matter. And I was actually there with my boyfriend, um, and uh, this was in a, in a church, a Ireland church, and I come from a Catholic background myself, and I didn't know that these talks of testimonies, pretty ones about uh, being gay and being cured of being gay, um, actually happened. Um, but um, in um, you know, subsequent years, uh, through acquaintances, pretty acquaintances and friends from the Protestant and Protestant evangelical uh, background in, in Northern Ireland, I became aware that this was um, not uncommon. Um, 
and uh, was something which um, uh, you know, was presented as a, as, a, as a negative experience for those people um, who had um, in, in encountered it. I um, was fortunate, I personally um, you know, hadn't um, been uh, exposed to, to this, even though I, I come from a faith background myself, I was brought up Catholic. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, put in uh, situations where there were, there were, you know, public talks advocating that you, that you could be cured from, uh, of, of homosexuality. Now, um, some years later, um, in uh, 2007, by then I'd actually converted myself, become a member of the Church of Ireland. Um, I became um, involved in um, activism for, for LGBT people, and I co-founded a Church of Ireland Anglican pro-LGBT group called Changing Attitude Ireland. And uh, with that group, uh, uh, we organised some events to raise awareness about the existence of um, organisations and individuals advocating that uh, and these are Christian organizations uh, that you could be cured of homosexuality and that you could move from from being being gay into post gay or ex gay. And um, uh, one of the events um, we organized took place in 2009 at Queen's University Belfast, where I was then a lecturer in um, sociology, specializing in sociology of religion. In fact, I'd I taught and did some work on you know sects and cults, and uh, some of these activities actually reminded me of the practices of sects and um, uh, and, and cults. Um, you know, small religious organisations which uh, took advantage of of people, often young people of a deep uh, Christian faith, and uh, within that context, were were able to um, persuade them to engage in, in in practice to transform their lives um, in a very negative way. So a speaker that we brought to um, to speak in Belfast was Jeremy Marks, and Jeremy Marks um, was a well-known um, English evangelical Christian who had, for a number of years, had a ministry called Courage UK, which um, he um, either gave public talks uh, around the uh, UK and and published books claiming that um, you know, he had been homosexual, uh, but that he had been able to over, overcome this through um, counselling and um, Christian peer support and um, you know, combination of um, you know, conservative interpretations of the Bible and Christian fellowship combined with um, yeah, kind of group work and, 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 and therapy. And in 2001, um, he surprised many of his um, Christian evangelicals uh, in, in Britain, Ireland, and America by actually making a very dramatic break with his past practices. And um, he declared that um, his previous um, activities with, with, with Courage UK had, had been, had been misguided, misguided um, and more than that, actually um, harmful. Um, and that he, he rejected the previous approach of either um, advocating that people who who um, uh, you know were, were attracted to people of the same sex should reject that and opt for celibacy, or that they could you know actively engage in counselling or 
other practices that might change your sexual orientation uh, away from being homosexual to being straight. And um, we felt that um, uh, it was very helpful for him to not just, he was probably talking Belfast, but he went on BBC um, Sunday Sequence programme just to, to point out that this practice uh, was still happening because even though he closed down his own organisation, there were other organisations and individual churches which were um, engaging in both spreading the message that you could become ex-gay um, um, or organising events. Now, um, I should point out that the um, uh, practice of Christian counselling to um, supposedly uh, bring about um, a conversion or a cure from being um, homosexual isn't something you know which is you know unique to Northern Ireland and in in the um, early 21st century uh, it's part of an international movement one which um, is very well developed in the United States and one way of highlighting this is how in 2010 the then biggest what would be called ex-gay organ, Christian organization in the United States, Exodus International. Um, their um, then a chief executive um, was invited to come to Northern Ireland to um, uh, engage in some, you know, uh, uh, public um, uh, events. Um, one of which would have been at um, the um, First Presbyterian Church in Ballinahinch, County Down. And it's worth noting there that we're, you know, the largest Protestant denomination in Northern Ireland, in Ireland, um, the Presbyterian Church was engaged in inviting the head of a Christian gay cure, gay conversion organization to come from America to Northern Ireland. Um, and that, that event was, was in association with um, one of the specialist gay cure Christian groups called Core Issues Trust. Um, so it's not just that there's a, um, individual churches within the mainstream denominations are inviting this uh, into Northern Ireland, but there's also um, an organization based in Northern Ireland, Core Issues Trust, which could be seen as um, kind of the leading Christian gay cure conversion therapy group in the UK. For example, this Core Issues Trust was a group that it took us campaigning to 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 uh, to, to London and um, tried to have um, basically a gay cure type message posted on on London red buses um, in London that would have made the national media at the time. So um, we could actually think of Northern Ireland as, as being sort of a um, hub or headquarters of Christian gay um, conversion type activism um, within the UK in, um, in, in Ireland. Now, um, in 2010, in response to the news of um, Exodus International coming to Northern Ireland, um, shading out to Ireland um, uh, with, with, with others, um, organized an event which um, we held um, in Belfast city centre um, at actually the, the hall of a, the non-subscribing um, Presbyterian church uh, premises in Rosemary Street, um, which uh, 
we called Love Needs No Cure. And uh, at that, um, we had um, a psychotherapist um, give information about how damaging these um, Pray Away the Gay, as we call them, Pray Away the Gay Ministries um, 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 uh, can be. So that gives you some idea of the, um, of the extent of, uh, of um, Christian, evangelical, Protestant Christian involvement in, um, I mean, they're, they're not medical practices, they're, they're primarily um, kind of Christian counseling and, and, and some kind of uh, pseudo, um, I would say pseudo-medical practice because um, these organizations um, like Cautious Trust in their material would, you know, misrepresent some scientific um, material out there. You know, they get some obscure um, academic or article and they would try and present that as um, scientific evidence uh, that um, uh, gay cure, gay conversion therapy uh, can work. And of course, this uh, has been flatly rejected by, as um, Rebecca mentioned earlier, the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, you know, who've made it very clear that, um, um, there's no sound scientific evidence that sexual orientation um, can be changed um, in the way that these um, gay cure, gay conversion therapies um, advocate. These um, gay cure, gay conversion um, therapies, which are being um, uh, promoted and um, it's in Northern Ireland, um, you know, they, they can think of um, a range of, uh, of, of, of forms. So for example, um, you know, whereas core issues trust would, would be um, kind of better known and, um, you know, the, the, the official, um, you know, psychiatric and, and council organizations are aware of, 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 uh, of, of groups like core issues and, and have um, you know, withdrawn any um, accreditation. There are um, um, also um, groups like True Freedom Trust who, um, you know, present maybe a, um, um, a more kind of acceptable face to this because um, uh, you know, they deny that they're engaged in gay conversion or um, cure, um, but uh, through their advocacy of um, celibacy as the only way of responding to, uh, to, um, to being gay um, is indicative of, of, of their hardline attitude and also um, you know, they originally were part of um, Exodus International, again, um, um, the, the international link. And, um, you know, mainstream denominations like the Church of Ireland have facilitated uh, groups like True Freedom Trust to hold events at Church of Ireland churches. And even remarkably, when the National Church of Ireland um, Conference on Sexuality took place in 2012, they invited True Freedom Trust representatives, you know, to to, to have an opportunity to, to, to um, address um, the, the delegates to gen the General Synod. Um, so um, there is still, um, you know, Church of Ireland, Presbyterian, other non congregations inviting either Truth uh, Core Issues or True Freedom Trust to contribute to their kind of educational programs around sexuality. Um, and that, of course, can be seen as a way of normalizing and making this uh, um, the, the, these practices um, um, you know, s s uh, s uh, seem normal in the way that, that, that um, you know, professional organizations and, and 
and, and many of us would, would, would have made concerns about him, about, about the practices. And we are talking here about practices. This is separate from, you know, an individual clergyman coming up and saying, you know, I've read a conservative interpretation of the Bible. Uh, here we're talking about, um, um, you know, um, either kind of workshops or programs um, which um, are intended to um, um, move some away from, you know, accepting that um, homosexuality is just part of the range of, of, of human diversity into something that's seen as, as, as not just evil in moral terms, but something which is, as I said at the beginning, um, you know, um, um, you know, deviant and pathological, and therefore has to be has to be um, uh, changed and and and, and managed. So, Richard, you mentioned that there are activities going on in mainstream churches that you are concerned about. Could you expand on those a little bit, please? Yes, I'm. I'm most familiar with what happens within the Anglican Church of Ireland, and uh, this is um, something which I addressed in a publication that um, I co-edited in 2012 called "Moving Forward Together: Homosexuality and the Church of Ireland." And um, I report the story uh, told to me by um, a young woman, a lesbian. And I think it's important to note that it's not just men who are affected by these practices, the women are also affected. And um, this woman who in the publication, she wanted to remain anonymous, understandably, we call Mary. And Mary said that she was very involved in her um, Church of Ireland parish church, and it was like a second home for her. And um, she was also um, realizing that, 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 that she was lesbian and, and had um, a foreign relationship with another woman. And uh, occasionally that other woman came with her to, to, to church. And then one day um, she said, the rector cornered me asking, was my partner there to tease and to tantalize? And Mary said that she, uh, uh, she, uh, you know, she 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 denied that um, uh, she was gay, but she said, um, "Before long, I was in a healing service, and the rector was praying the dark things out of the church. I did consider that I might be one of those dark things. And that night, the rector asked Mary to come down to the church so that some of us would like to talk to you. And Mary said she assumed that the, some of us might be, you know, three or four of." parishioners that she knew best but she said that when she turned up at the church there were actually um eight people and uh, the rector there and that they told her that satan had veiled her eyes and the scripture was black and white and that it was an affront to see her worship god and that she was not welcome at the lord's table again she said she tried to, to tell a bit of, to them about her life situation but she was cut off so Basically, you know, Mary um, in uh, her local church was kind of emotionally ambushed by a large group of people and subjected to an emotional assault um, and told that she wasn't welcome in, in, um, in church. And to me, that is um, um, an, an activity and a, and a practice you know, to, to, to make her uh, desist from her natural sexuality, which I would consider to be unacceptable. Um, and when Mary reported that to her bishop, her bishop didn't, didn't show any concerns. Oh, well, maybe she's just going to find another church of Ireland, parish church to worship in. I'm thinking that, is, that isn't good enough, you know. I think um, um, 
religious institutions and have a, have a duty of care to the parishioners. And it's one thing for a conservative sermon to be spoken from the pulpit, but when actually, um, you know, you're told to come along, not told to the meetings about, and basically ambushed by a large group of people, and, you know, they pray over you and they tell you that Satan has veiled your eyes, that to me is um, a, a, a practice um, which, um, uh, you know, should be unacceptable in any institution, whether it's a faith institution or not. Thank you, Richard. John, Rebecca, for joining us for this episode and sharing those important links to the insidious nature of continuing conversion therapy in Northern Ireland, but also around the world. On the date of recording this episode, the 9th of July 2021, conversion therapy is still legal in Northern Ireland. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.